Well, welcome back as we head into hour two. Rochelle Walensky may not give her her personal number, but Debbie Lesko can have mine any day of the week if she asks. Debbie Lesko proudly representing Arizona's 8th Congressional District. You go, girl. What a great job you did yesterday with uh, with uh, Randy Weingarten. What a great job you did, Debbie. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it, Seth. I mean, we had Randy Weingartner, the president of the American Federation of Teachers, uh, in front of our committee. And uh, one of the questions I asked her was, do you have the personal direct uh, phone number to the CDC director, uh, Walensky? And after fumbling around a little bit, then I asked her again. She said, yes, she did. And I said, well, I hope uh, I get it, too. Because You're a, a member, member of, Cong- of Congress. You're just a member of Congress. On, yeah, yeah, right. And on, and on two, two committees yeah. that have jurisdiction over the CDC. Yeah. And so uh, you can see where the priorities are of the CDC director and the Biden administration on their determination of school closings is they called up the uh, um, teachers union and asked for their input. More Yes, they did, of course, that. And they, of course, worked with the American Academy, uh, Academy of Pediatrics to get them to change their positioning on school closings. But you know what was interesting to me about this, Debbie, this this inquiry that you asked of her? One of the interesting things about it was the shame she had over it. You knew that she knew it was wrong because she repeated and stalled on the question. I, I, I would urge people to go back and watch the interrogatory you did with her. The way she repeated it and had to admit, yes, you knew she knew it was a wrong thing, right? Yeah, and the I, I imagine the only reason that she said yes was because we could, you yeah, know, subpoena yeah. phone she, data yeah, or yes, something to find out no, that she has the personal phone yeah. number of but she was she was director. trying to detoxify the impact of your question, which was an, a good one. Why would the yeah. head of the teachers union have the direct line to the head of the CDC? Or it just well, yeah, yeah. I mean, as we saw in other countries, um, in Sweden, they did not close down schools. No, they did not, not have masking mandates on the children. They did not have social uh, distancing. Zero of their children died from COVID-19. And uh, there was the CDC actually had a study itself that said that kids don't get as severely sick. And then there were other studies that said that children have a low transmission rate to adults. And so, you know, this was never about the kids. It was never about the kids. And that's what I think is such the shame of organizations like the American Federation of Teachers. They're not about the kids. They use the kids. They use the kids for their adult uh, political uh, gamesmanship. But it's not it's never been about the kids. It's been about the people who pay the dues. Yeah, well, you know, individual teachers, I applaud them. It's a hard job Uh, during covid. It was difficult. But the teachers unions have a long history of fighting, you know, for their teachers' rights, whether it's wages or whatever the case. But in this case, they wanted, they didn't want the schools to be open, right? So it's very clear. And uh, because the teachers' union um, donates uh, millions of dollars to Democrats and the Biden administration, the Biden administration uh, was going to call them, you know, and say, what do you think about this? instead of listening to their own science about closing schools. And it's unfortunate because our children are so far behind now 
Um, the ACT scores are, are, I think, at a 30-year low. I mean, this is this is sad. This really hurt our kids, not only on their test scores, but kids were suicidal, uh, had mental health problems. You know, it was it was really difficult. My daughter, um, you know, she she was trying to work remotely from home. I remember because everybody, you know, worked remotely, and at the same time, trying to watch my grandsons. Uh, in front of uh, laptops on TV tables next to her computer, trying to monitor them while the teachers were trying to teach them remotely. It was just crazy. And the other thing that was crazy that I brought up to her is like, okay, so teachers weren't, you know, could, didn't go into the schools, but you had uh, these low-wage workers oh. that would go into the schools in Arizona and um, in other states and monitor the kids in front of laptops who are having Zoom calls with their teachers. So are teachers, you know, automatically more susceptible to COVID-19 than these lower-wage non-union schools? No, no, that's the the non-union part. It's they didn't have a union that represented their interests as strongly. And part of the shame of it, too, Debbie, if I might, uh, Congresswoman Lesko, part of the shame of it, too, is for those of us who during that period of time, in some cases as many as 18 months, we're pointing out the deficits that our children were going to suffer as a consequence. We're scolded by the unions. We're scolded by members of the leadership of the unions that that we were willing to put people's lives at risk in the name of getting our children back to school. In fact, we were even called, oddly enough, things like racist, as if race had anything to do with it. We were called killers. We were called teacher killers. It was an awful, awful pitting of American against American over something the science did not substantiate and has not substantiated to date. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it was a really bad time all around, um, not allowing not only the teachers and the education of our students, but the people that were in hospitals and dying and they couldn't see their loved ones. And, you know, it was, you know, it was just terrible. So we had another uh, COVID select subcommittee hearing uh, today, actually. Oh, okay. um, well, actually, it wasn't it was the other committee that I'm on, the oversight subcommittee. And we had in some uh, people talking about biosafety yeah. and how there's, um, you know, people don't realize that there's lab leaks even in the United States. And they're doing some very serious, including gain of function research at United States labs, labs throughout all of the world. And, uh, you know, some of these labs, uh, specifically ones in other parts of the world, don't have biosafety. There's not a a good biosafety system here, even in the United States, that oversees safety to make sure we don't have lab leaks. And this is a serious issue because we don't want this to happen again, right? Although everybody says the pandemic is going to happen again, so how are we going to respond? And that's the purpose for these congressional hearings. Good. It's not just to, you know shame uh, Randy Weingartner, but it's to say, okay, we need to learn from the mistakes that were made, the things that we did, and we need to change it for when the next pandemic comes around. And that's why it's important. Uh, There's monkeypox out there and there's, you know, there's all different things out there. There's all these research going on in labs throughout the United States. 
and we need to be safer because because right now it's it's not um it's not as safe as it should be no nor does anyone really know about it i mean they just assume that with all these alphabet soups whether it's the epa or the cd any number of these agencies that um that 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 are well-staffed and well-funded, we just assume safety, and we can't. And it's good that you're highlighting it, and it would be good if this administration would start doing something about it. They're easy and ready to blame previous administrations for things that happen on their watch, but now that you're highlighting this stuff, Debbie, there's not going to be much excuse for them not to do something about it. And it's surprising to me that they would let it get so far as to make it an issue that Republicans had to or the opposite party had to highlight. But I'm glad you're doing it. And look, if if you can get a story in The New York Times, or The Washington Post on this, there will be nowhere for this administration to hide and run from. Yeah, we well, the one thing we have to do is to take away the authority to uh have overseeing biosafety in these labs from the National Institute of Health, Good. which gives out grants yeah. for the research yes, and development, which gave out grants, as you know, to EcoHealth Alliance, who then gave subgrants to the Wuhan Institute yeah. of Virology, where we believe COVID-19 leaked from. Yep. And so, you know, you can't have the, per- the agency that's giving out the money also do make sure that the labs are safe because it's kind of like a conflict of interest. Oh, yeah, at, so, at a minimum. You know, we, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we need to, we really need to, uh, th- this is a big issue that a lot of people don't really talk about, but we're talking about it in our committees in Congress, and it's important uh, for the safety of, of all Americans. I'm glad you're doing it, Debbie. Thank gosh, and uh, thank you for being there. Thanks for calling in today as well. We, uh, we support you so much, and are so appreciative of your time and effort. All right. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Seth. You, you betcha. take care. You do so okay. as well. Take good care, Debbie Lesko. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. 602-508-0960. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. 602-508-0960. Thinking about that call, Mike, uh, Mike from Carefree uh, gave us in the toward the end of the last hour. Uh, there's an interesting column up from Jonathan Turley, Dennis Prager, who I'll see a little later tonight. Hopefully, see some of you there too at the Cigar Night with Dennis. Uh, you know, he likes to talk about the difference between leftists and liberals, and that there just aren't that many prominent liberals around anymore. Uh, one of them would be probably, he'd agree, Jonathan Turley, professor of law at George Washington University, a Democrat who uh, still defends civil liberties. And Jonathan Turley has a column up that goes exactly to what Mike was calling about and plays off a little bit my monologue from the previous hour. May I read it? Mao Zedong once said that to read too many books is harmful. It appears that many in higher education agree. Not only are writers and intellectuals now supporting blacklisting authors, but universities regularly see speakers banned or canceled on campus. You know, by the way, just to pause for a moment on that point, for all this talk about Republican governors engaging in book banning, how about speaker banning on the college campuses? How about that? 
Certain views are not viewed as harmful and thus intolerable. The latest example is perhaps the most tragically ironic. Associated students of Whitworth University, that's in Washington State, voted 9-4 to four to bar Chinese dissident Z Van Fleet from coming to campus to share her experience as a survivor of Maoist China. By the way, another answer to my question, why is it we are so ignorant of the depredations of the CCP? Well, here's why. Person banning on the college campuses. That's why. Her criticism of woke culture in the United States was deemed too harmful for any students to hear. Students objected to Van Fleet's tweets on diversity, equity, and inclusion, BLM, the LGBTQ community, and environmental justice, among other social justice initiatives. In its university mission statement, Whitworth declares a deep commitment to free speech on campus. Quote, Whitworth affirms freedom of expression for its students, staff, and faculty. Our commitment to free expression is grounded in our faith. We take Jesus Christ as the model for engagement in public discourse and for exploration of expression of ideas, close quote. I wonder if student teachers from Whitworth would be allowed to teach at certain Phoenix Union school districts because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. Students who came to the university with that assurance are now being told that some views are simply too harmful to be heard. It may be a familiar moment for Van Fleet, from her own experience in the Cultural Revolution. In February of 1957, Mao issued a speech titled On the Correct Handling of Contradictions Among the People, in which he encouraged intellectual debate and criticism. Intellectuals were leery and did not come forward, uh, prompting Mao to take measures to induce their speech. When some then criticized party orthodoxy or corruption... (laughs) Mao had the speech retroactively changed and cracked down on dissenters as spreading harmful thoughts. You know where you get the parallels to this? Whenever a liberal or Democrat says we need to have an honest conversation about race. We need to have an honest and national dialogue on race. Well, (laughs) if only. If only. They mean that the same way Mao wanted to have honest uh, discussions about dissent. Mao rounded up the intellectuals and told the citizens that the government would only allow the fragrant, sorry for that, folks, would only allow the fragrant flowers, that's a hard phrase, would only allow the fragrant flowers of healthy debate while pulling out the poisonous weeds of noxious capitalism. What is noteworthy is how close the rhetoric of Mao is to that of many anti-free speech advocates on our campuses today. Mao declared, quote, words and actions should help to unite, not divide the people of our various nationalities. They should be beneficial, not harmful to socialist construction. They should help to consolidate, not weaken the people's democratic dictatorship. They should help to consolidate, not weaken democratic centralism. Close quote. This is exactly the view of free speech you get on Marxist websites. Freedom of speech to the Marxists or to the Marxist Maoists or the Maoist Leninists is the whole entire range of speech that supports Marxist or revolutionary thought, but not freedom of speech for that which doesn't. That is their realm. It's good if it's that. It's not free speech, in other words. The notion that free speech is itself harmful permeates higher education institutions. Students and some faculty have maintained the position that they have a right to silence those with harmful speech and Student newspapers have declared opposing views to be 
outside of the protection of free speech. Columbia Journalism School Dean Steve Cole denounced the weaponization of free speech. That is to say, speech can be violence. At a school of journalism, at one of the probably top two or three most important schools of journalism. Used to be Columbia, uh, Missouri, and maybe Northwestern. At Washington and Lee University, faculty signed a petition to bar a conservative speaker and anyone with harmful ideologies. Harmful ideologies, folks. Harmful ideologies. At Emory University, the Law Review rescinded a publication offered an author questioning systemic racism theories as, quote, hurtful and unnecessarily divisive. How do they know it's unnecessarily divisive? Maybe it's necessarily divisive. Maybe it's not divisive to anyone except the editors of the journal. Other Emory students barred a free speech group from being recognized because there are no apparent safeguards in place to prevent potential harm that could result from things discussed. Harm from things discussed, folks. Emory. That's the uh, school our, our friend Mark Bauerlein used to teach at. In the recent outrageous canceling of a federal judge by Stanford Law students, the Stanford DEI dean, Tyrion Steinbeck, condemned Judge Duncan for speaking when his views were considered harmful by many. Is the juice worth the squeeze, was her question. You know what's funny about the law school students? What's funny is law school students are trained, or used to be, to debate different sides of the same issue. Some to become prosecutors, some to become defense attorneys, some to become plaintiff's attorneys, some to become civil defense attorneys. How do you face an opposing counsel if you're not willing to face an opposing idea? Do you cry to the judge when the other side makes their argument in the court? Do you cry to the judge that it's unfair that the person on the other side of the lawsuit or on the other side of the state has an attorney that disagrees with you? Is all appeals to the jury to be ended? Why have an appeal to the jury? Why have an appeal to the jury? Why have a jury at all? That's basically what the universities are saying now, isn't it? The students are no longer juries. They only get one side. Think about the, think about the Kafkaesque notion of a law school not allowing diverse points of view. The Kafkaesque nature of it seriously because you are going to be prosecuted with no opportunity for another side. That's what Stanford taught. That's what our schools teach. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. It's a delight to bring back to the show Congressman David Schweiker, proudly representing Arizona's 1st Congressional District and recently named vice chair of the Joint Economic Committee. That's a great committee, David. Congrats for being put on there. Yeah, and it's a weird committee. We actually rotate back and forth with the Senate. I know, but it's so you guys can put out such great stuff. And then I'll get to be chair when we rotate back. So it's this. But the beauty of it is you get a handful of Ph.D. economists that work for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's great. And I, 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 I remember uh, some of the best economic reports I have read came out of the Joint Economic Committee. Oh, no. You guys really have a lot of liberty there. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, we have an Whoops. 
David, I think you may have hit mute or something by accident. Did I, did I lose you there for a second? Uh, am I back? You're back, that baby. And, and it may be my fault. I'm on the side of a big, in the Capitol. I'm, about to I'm just going to say it's your fault. I'm just going to Yeah, I'm you. about to give a speech to an Indian um, community that, that's visiting the Capitol. So I'm in this echo chamber in a corner. So if the sound quality is horrible, I, I apologize. No, you're good now. You're good now. But the really interesting thing, for anyone that's listening, if you have a curiosity of, hey, I really want to know about, like we just did a project on demographics of why uh, these young males, why, are, why have they disappeared from the labor market? Right. Where are they? And, and so sometimes it's not just, hey, what's the GDP going to be? It's what's the inputs? What's happened to workers? What's ha- what, is, what does fentanyl do to the future of the economy? Right. What does, you know, because understanding these things helps you sort of build policy. And that's what Joint Economic Committee does, is we sort of lay the table for the budget, saying here is our projection of what the growth really will be. I'm fascinated by the uh, men not in the workforce, the stuff that uh, Nick Eberstadt has been working on and talking about. Would you make sure and have one of your staffers send me that report? I'd love to read it. Oh, yeah. It's actually, if you're crazy enough, I did part of it on the floor on Tuesday. Good. And it's amazing. People get upset when you actually talk about things other than the, the pop culture stuff you'll see on tonight's cable. Yeah. But there's a crisis out there. Oh, yeah. Um, in 18 years, the United States has more deaths than births. Yep. We need to understand why on the, 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 the longevity numbers in the United States have have. have Flatlined in the late 90s, yep. and the last couple of years have gone down. And if you look at the data, it's it's yes, it is drugs, yep. it is suicide. Yep. But if you really roll it back, you'd be shocked how much of it is obesity. Yep, and diabetes. That is yeah. This is this is this is the great untold death. story. This this should be unheard of in a developed nation that it's losing longevity. This should be an unheard of thing in a developed, well, industrialized remember, country. One of the things we haven't told the truth is during the pandemic, we have whole states that their obesity number, you know, because just, just, you know, a, a small margin, you cross over into the obesity definition. We have states that almost doubled their statistical obesity population. Yeah. Yeah, no, and this is the driver of so many healthcare costs, not just uh not just early death, but healthcare costs as well. You've been you've been nobly on that issue in 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 how it's how it how it takes so and much of our Medicare and Medicaid, Medicare and Medicaid, about. right? Yep. Yeah. yeah, it's 30 oh diabetes is 31% of Medicare. Yeah, this is the type 2, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And this is something we could do something about, although there is evidently not evidently. There is a weird pushback that this too is something we're not supposed to talk about. It is. Um, look, if you actually love and care for people, yeah. Um, is it mean, or is it? No, no, don't be a jerk about it. I mean, but 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 it does mean we want you to live. Yeah. But we also have a society. Remember, about seventy percent of all healthcare now is paid through government. Right. We need to have a reality. Taxpayers now cover the vast majority of health care costs in the United States. 
the obesity problem, David, is certainly at that end, but it's also at the front end, too, with childhood obesity. I mean, it is a big part of our military recruiting problem as well. I have to take a break. Do you have to run, or do you, or do you have time? No, no, we, we have a couple minutes. I'm not on stage All right, for good, cause, a couple more minutes. Okay, good. I want to ask you about the Limit, Save, and Grow Act as well, if I can. All right, let's do it. We'll be right back with David Schweiker. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Congressman David Schweikert is our guest. Uh, David, um, last you were on, I believe they had just announced the Limit, Save, Grow Act, and you were setting about crunching it and uh, delving into it. Um, It passed the House. I like it. Uh, What are its chances? What are its highlights? Um. (laughs) <laughs> we got it out. Yeah. Um, look, it, it, it doesn't go nearly as far as I would like. I would have loved us to use a different baseline year. But for a number of the phone calls we got at the office, it breaks my heart how much the public has no understanding how much and how much financial trouble we're in. But you do realize 30 cents out of every dollar we spend is borrowed. Yeah. And I'll, we'll get phone calls saying, you know, I demand you cut spending, but don't cut veterans' benefits, don't cut my Medicare, don't cut this. Right. And you explain that in that case, I can't – if 25% of our spending is discretionary, that's the military, that's all of what you think is government, the Park Service, the FBI, Congress, the White House, you know, that's 25%. And we still have to borrow money, cover Medicare, veterans' benefits, those things, mm-hmm. and – you need dramatic change, but you're going to have to build a plan where you're willing to do really tough things for years. The beauty of this is there's about four and a half trillion of savings over four years, and it's sort of resetting the baselines on the spending. Um, the hard part here is the war that we've set up with the left, because the left doesn't want any constraints. They just want to keep spending. And a huge amount of the spending they passed last year when they were in charge basically goes to their contributors. And on top of which, they will tell you for as much as you think the Limit, Save, Grow Act is, uh, shall we say, smaller than it should be, uh, more abstemious than it should be, they're telling us it's draconian and drastic. Yeah. Well, remember, it's we're cutting spending to a bunch of the agenda where it's people who write them checks. Yeah, right. Okay. So, so you know, it, it's remember, it's always about the money. Yeah. And the left does a brilliant thing. They actually use Congress as a washing machine. Yeah. They give out grants and contributions or things, you know, grants and special deals. And it's somehow the executives from those companies and organizations write them checks. Yeah, somehow. It's amazing how that it's happens. amazing how that happens. I know you got to go to a hearing, but one thing we can say is at least Republicans were willing to raise the debt limit right now, huh? It's... It rips you apart, um, but you don't have a choice. Yeah. yeah. And and so how do you do it? Uh, and you and I have talked about it. There's these moments where you get stressors. Mm-hmm. Debt limit is a stressor where you can say, okay, you want this changed. We want changes too. Mm-hmm. And without those stressors, 
the, the Democrats are never going to negotiate with us. They got so much of what they wanted in the previous four years, two years, when they controlled Congress. Um, and now we're trying to find ways to roll it back, and they're just trying to find ways to wait us out. Yeah. Remember, we only control the House. We don't yep. control the Senate. We don't yep. control the White House. Yep. We need something with leverage, and this is it. Good, good. All right, go get him. I know you got to go to a hearing, buddy, but thanks for calling in today. I really appreciate All it. Right. Congrats again on the Joint Economic Committee. That's fantastic. That's really great. <laughs> you betcha. Goodbye now. Bye-bye. Uh, Matt is in Phoenix. Hello, Matt. How are you, sir? Thanks for your patience. Uh, doing good, Seth. Uh, sorry the congressman couldn't uh, stick around, but uh, one thing that I did not hear about when you're talking about uh, the longevity uh, decreasing is the fact that our medical care, while it may be the best in the world, is basically useless to a lot of us. I don't know if it's the best in the world anymore. I just don't. I just well, don't. I I pay roughly $500 a month. Exactly. And my insurance is worthless to me because I have a $5,000 yep. deductible. Exactly right. Who can afford that? Honestly, who I, can afford I can't. that? No, of course not. Of course not. What was it like five years ago, by the way, Matt? Well, before Obamacare, or uh, Obamacare, um, I was paying uh, about roughly the same, but my deductible was $250. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. No, I hear this all the time. I don't know how people outside of uh, of employer-based care, I don't know how they do it. I have no idea how they do it. And I'm not even sure well, that employer-based care is the right way to go. That's a relic of World War II in the first place. Well, the th- the thing is, is I you know I am getting my insurance through my employer, and you know it's it's basically but it's eating five hundred out of your check. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's worthless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With a five thousand dollar deductible, I mean, really, that's just catastrophic care at this point. If you have five thousand dollars, that's what it is. And that's it exactly. Yeah. I've been fighting a, a condition now for going on two years yeah. because I can't afford to go to a doctor. Right, right. And and, and, and and people wonder why we complain about longevity as well. I get it, Matt. I get it. This is a main issue, and it's ripe for the Republican Party to address. And I'm going to put it squarely to David next week when he comes back. Okay. All right, brother. Hang in there. Stay well. Do your best. I, I, I hear this all the time. I have no idea how people can afford that. I just have no idea. And I guess it's – I guess, you know, look, I, the health care costs obviously are, 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 are at their highest uh, in, 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 in acute circumstances, whether it's end of life or, or whether it's uh, critical care or whether it's dire that's where that's where the real expenses are. So, you know, for those situations, I can't say much. But I do think it's time to lift the veil off the discussions of what healthcare really should be about in the first instance before it becomes acute, which is prevention. Like everything else, it comes back to prevention, it seems to me. Like every other problem in this country, or almost every other problem. It's about prevention. Be right back. (laughs) 
You think about this economy, banks failing, stock market volatility, recession on the horizon, lies about inflation. What if you could invest in a portfolio not correlated to the Fed or the stock market? It's a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like. No loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. Think of that, Freedom. There are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio that delivers an up to 10.25% fixed rate of return. I'm talking about why Re- refi. Why refi is local. I encourage you to stop by their offices on Scottsdale Road in the 101. I've been there plenty. I can tell you, you will not get a sales pitch. No one's going to ask you to sign anything. When you meet with the team at Y-Refi, you'll see why I like them so much and trust them, and you can too. This is a secure collateralized portfolio where Y-Refi is also a due diligence approved firm, offering an up to 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. The word invest, letter Y, R-E-F-Y.com, or call them at 888-Y-Refi-34, 888 why refi 34 oh this is fair you thought it was just swimming no it's marathoning too now transgender athlete london marathon beats 14,000 women you saw that bill 14,000 it's just not going to stop it's not gonna, it's, it's it's incredible it's just and it's incredible to me who was i making the point to earlier was it on this show or somewhere else was I being interviewed or was it on this show where I was talking about it's interesting that only the only it you think about the feminists who are willing to stick up for the, for this stuff and stand against this nonsense. Why is it most of them, most of them, if they're liberal, aren't from America because we've terrified the hell out of them. That's why. We've done, you know, you try and cancel people like Nava Trilova or J.K. Rowling. They're going to be afraid. Sam Stone's coming up. You know, raise it with Sam, too. We'll be right back.